think every song that we sang um, today had some mention of death. What's up with that, right? Um, as a non-Christian, uh, I would say, this is really weird, right? Like when I go to work, I don't talk with my coworkers about death. Yeah, we come here to church and we sing songs in which every single song had a mention of death in it. I experienced death for um, the first time in, uh, in the death of my mother's dad. He's a lovely man. And I don't think I really understood what was going on at the time. I couldn't be in the same room as the dead body when they were doing his room. When I went to Australia to do my degree, a car came uh, coming down the highway. I was walking home uh, at night. And if it had come down five seconds later, it might have hit me because it hit the curb and flipped over and smashed into a building that was right beside the apartment building where I was living. One night, while I was hanging out with a couple friends in Australia, this uh, guy was drunk, maybe high, I don't know. But he, he came into where we were hanging out, is the... Uh, the back door was open, and it opened up into this little courtyard. Uh, we're kind of all the apartments. There's big, big square. Uh, and all the apartments, the doors opened and backed into this beautiful courtyard. And so he was kind of stumbling through. And he saw us or heard us and stumbled in. And started causing trouble with some of the people there. <clears throat> Got into a fight with one of the guys. They're like, what's up with that? It's crazy. Eventually left. We got him out. We went to an apartment two doors over. Maybe 15 minutes later, a girl came screaming out of the apartment and said that her friend had taken six packs of painkillers. And we went to take a look, and it was the same guy. So we called the ambulance, the police. They got there as soon as they could. And they did CPR on him for about 20 minutes. And to no avail, he died. Just thinking, thanks, Adam. I came to church today to feel happy. Right? There's a reason we don't talk about death. Why do we sing about it? That's what we're going to talk about. I was, uh, I was faced with my own weakness and mortality as I got sick the few days before I was supposed to preach, and I'm still kind of recovering right now. And so thank you to everybody who's been praying for me. And some of the prayers are, were, and this might seem weird to someone, who doesn't pray or isn't a Christian. Some of the prayers were, Lord, I thank you that Adam got sick right before he was supposed to preach for the first time. So why would you pray that? It's like awful, right? 
I do want someone to get sick. And this is what me and my wife were praying, is that God used this, used this to draw me into that I would not preach today in my own strength, but that I would lean on you. And I was watching a movie, because that's about all I could do for the last few days. I watched a lot of movies. You guys have seen Air Force One? <laughs> yeah, it's an awesome movie, right? Harrison Ford is the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Air Force One gets hijacked by these uh, Russian um, terrorists. <laughs> and um, and right at the end, after like they managed to like take back the plane and everything, um, the the whole movie's gone by. It's been all this craziness. And the president, he's like tricked the terrorists into thinking he's left the plane, but actually he stayed behind and he ends up like being the main like guy and taking back Air Force One. He's like super awesome, right? And he's like, yeah, Harrison Ford, you know, this is the coolest thing you've done since Star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, and so right at the end, these six Russian MiGs come flying, uh, towards the plane, right? And, uh, and they fire a rocket at Air Force One and the American MiGs are, are, Coming, but they're just two, they're a few minutes away, right? And they fire a rocket at Air Force One. Air Force One launches its countermeasures and they, they kind of dodge the first missile and then they fire another missile and they're like, Oh no, we're out of countermeasures. And finally the, the American, uh, planes show up and they realize there's nothing they can do to stop this one missile that they fired. And so the one guy takes his plane and he flies into the missile's way and gives his own life to save. Air Force One and the President. Some people get to die for great causes and great reasons. Some people die, we just don't understand why. And we can try and figure it out, we can try and rationalize it, but ultimately sometimes we just don't know. Hopefully some of you will die for amazing reasons, because ultimately every single one of you will die. And if you don't die doing something crazy heroic like that, hopefully you dedicate your life to doing something amazing. All right, let's hit up the Bible, right? We're going to do a lot of Bible today. <coughs> Hebrews 10, 1 to 10. Instead of verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The book of Hebrews is written to an Old Testament people. We know that. We've been hearing all about that these past weeks. Uh, they know the Bible. They know Old Testament scripture. They probably love the Bible, actually. They probably know God. And the writer of Hebrews is teaching them about right thinking about God. How to, how to reconcile what God has been doing from the beginning with the events that have recently taken place with the death of one man. And the author is showing them what that death is all about and how it can affect them right then and there and how it has eternal purpose. Mike talked about that last week. And we can mediate eternity for those around us. All right, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Let's talk about 
what that shadow might be. I would say point number one, if we're taking points and learning from Daniel, is three points in every sermon. So here's number one. <clears throat> Jesus is the atonement that has been shadowed in the Old Testament. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis real quick. First off, Genesis 2.16, Adam and Eve are in the garden. The Lord has made everything and called it good. He made man and woman, called it very good. He gives them a command. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. He gives them total freedom, joy to it. Freedom to enjoy what he's made. But of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know what happens. Even those less familiar with the Bible know what happens. What do they do? They eat of it. But they don't die right there, do they? Imagine it like this. They uh, unplug themselves. You unplug your toaster. Is it dead? Kind of, in a way. It's still existing right there in front of you, right? Physically, it's still there. But it has no energy. It has no proper function. It cannot do what it was made to do because it's not plugged into the power source. You can go Genesis 3.15. How is Jesus a shadow? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, most people believe that this, Genesis 3.15, is God speaking the first promise of Jesus' coming. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He's talking to the serpent, Satan and you shall bruise his seal. That ultimately, Jesus will do battle with Satan. That Jesus will overcome him, defeat him, but in the process, Jesus will suffer harm. We know about the Passover. Let's flip there. There's going to be a lot of Bible today. Yeah. <laughs> I figure if I can do my first one, I might as well have a lot of Bible in it. <clears throat> All right, we're just going to read this real quick. Ready? The Passover. This is Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it um, from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of, the, of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted 
but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike, this is God talking, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what's happening here? So God says, slaughter this lamb, paint the blood on your doorposts, and death, when I come to bring death on the land, I will pass over you. <clears throat> what does that mean? How is that a shadow? Ultimately, I would say Jesus is our Passover lamb. Revelation 21 says, come see the bride of the lamb. That's Jesus. And the bride is the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John 1, 29, Jesus said of himself, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, this is 700 years before Jesus comes. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Ultimately talking about Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 19, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The uh, author of Hebrews here specifically references Psalm 40. We read that earlier. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. What's he talking about? Are we talking about slaughtering the lamb, burning it? Are we talking about those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, Passover even? Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So why would God put in this law, this Passover, and say, sacrifice these animals, but ultimately it brings him no, no pleasure? Well, here's the problem with shadows. Right? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, we tend to take those shadows and make them the true forms when they're not. Okay? So what typically happened to the people of Israel? The shadow, the slaughtering of the animal, to them, as opposed to them placing their faith in the promise of God, Became, th became them twisting the arm of God and trying to force them, him to do something. As opposed to pointing to a sign of righteousness to come. They made it the means of their own righteousness and self-righteousness and pride. So what happens then? Oh, we can slaughter lots of animals. Oh boy, we can do this. God, aren't you proud of me? Well, God, I go to church every Sunday and I sing all the songs. Aren't you proud of me? Don't you owe me something now? In some of the older traditions of church, 
We've got to have the biggest stick and the coolest dress. Aren't I the coolest person in this whole place? No knock on people who still do that. We love those guys. We love, we love them all. Right? Because we can do this too, right? God, don't I have the coolest beard and the nicest blazer in this whole place right now? <laughs> right? Don't I deserve the, the most favor from all you guys? <laughs> right? We can do that right here and right now. Try and earn and merit our own righteousness. And really, we're just putting ourselves above people and looking down on them. Or taking the arm of God and trying to twist it to do our own will. How's it going for you? How have you taken something that is good and that God has ordained to be for your benefit, to place your faith in Christ, or to bring you into community with believers, to celebrate his goodness? How are you taking that and twisting it into something else? Maybe something to merit your own self-righteousness and pride. So negative today. Well, here's something good. You'd say Jesus is that shadowed, that shadow in the Old Testament. And that some folks along the way were putting their faith in Jesus, in the promise of God, from Genesis through all of the Old Testament, Exodus, Isaiah, the whole time through, all the way up till he comes. And he died on the cross, like we sang in three different songs today. He died on the cross. Why? Why? <clears throat> we'll get to that in a second. But what did it do? What does Jesus' death do? This is point number two. Jesus' death accomplished something for God's people. And this, this is beautiful. If, uh, if anything, we can wrestle with all these concept, concepts intellectually and theologically and whatever. But I'm going to try just for maybe five minutes here to sweet talk to you that if the death of Jesus accomplished something, that these some things are pretty good. So, number one, Jesus' death accomplishes access to the presence of God, and this might be just the best of all. Until I was 23 years old, I basically had never been to church before, not really met any Christians or had relationship with any Christians. Um, and so the idea and concept of God was maybe something fleeting, um, maybe something when I was alone in my parents' house in my bedroom at night looking out the window I might have thought of briefly. But the presence of God became tangible and real to me at a certain point in my life. The girl brought me to church. Always about a girl, isn't it? <laughs> girl brought me to church and uh, met up with these folks. Um, it's mostly an old dying church, mostly 80 plus, and they had this nice young pastor, which is pretty cool. Uh, he took us out for lunch, and uh, just a solid dude, right? One of those guys who just always show up. You invite him to something, you just show up. 
the presence. I watch these Christians pray at Bible study. Hey, what are you doing? You really think God's here? You really think God's doing something? He was. And one day on the subway, I felt it for the first time. The weight, the weight came pressing down, and I burst into tears. I said, God, again, seeing, I've been pondering my own life and thinking about the people that I've hurt, the death in the relationships, some very significant and important relationships that has been a major part of my life and that I have been a major part of inflicting. And I know that if I continue this way, that that will just keep happening. And in my own strength, I can't, can't bring it back to life. I need you to take control. That's part of my first prayer on the subway. So I felt the presence of God tangibly, and he spoke and he said, it's okay. Now, sometimes the presence of God is scary. And uh, from that point on, I kind of ran from that. Yeah. And it wasn't until later on, halfway, uh, maybe a third of the way through my trip to Australia, where God grabbed me again. And this time I didn't turn away. The presence of God for the first time in my life came when I asked him to do something. It was a hunger. He came pressing in, and I realized my own hunger, and I cried out. And this is what came next. Verse, uh, verse 19 and, um, and 22 in Hebrews. We didn't read it, but I'll read it real quick. This is where I'm getting this presence of God's day. <clears throat> um, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain... It's the curtain of the temple. And that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, uh, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the language. Confidence to enter the holy places and the curtain. The curtain was what separated the most holiest of holies from the people, and only one person was allowed to enter it. And literally, the presence of God was thought to dwell in there. What he's saying is the curtain is no more because the blood of Jesus gives us access. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Cleansing and forgiveness of sin, verse 22, he says it right here. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can have forgiveness of sin and cleansing of sin. You can. Through the death of Jesus. I was addicted to 
pornography for 10 years. And I didn't care about the people I was watching on the computer screen. And I didn't care myself or the people around me. I just needed my quick fix in that moment. Little did I know that those girls possibly being trafficked against their will, being forced to do these things, drugged and abused. It's possibly addicted to alcohol. It had a power over me. I mean, I used to cope with weight of life was to turn to that. It was a chain that held me down. The power that Jesus brought through his death to destroy sin for the world was made a reality in my life. To the point where I don't need pornography. I don't need alcohol. My desire and my conscience is no longer held by those things. That I can walk clean from the sin that has been committed against me. It can usually weigh you down if you've been sinned against in some awful way. Maybe you are parents, or some other authority figure like a teacher, even a pastor. You can be free from that sin that's committed against you. And the sin that you've actively committed against others or yourself or God, you can be forgiven. And, you know verse 23? You can have the confidence to tell others about this. When I first became a Christian, I was really scared to talk about some of the real things that were going on in my life and how God was healing me from them. Let's read it. And let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can tell others. I can tell you. Without wavering. And sometimes, telling the people that are closest to me is the hardest, even though I care for them the most. Without confidence, I can tell them. With confidence, I can tell them. And so can you. Coworkers, friends, parents, spouse even. <clears throat> the death of Jesus bought you a community that wants the best for you and pushes you forward in love and good works. Any community that I've ever really been a, a part of, they might have had a shadow of that, pushing me forward to love and good works, but nothing like the church. Nothing like the church. You guys help push me forward in a way that is like none other. Mike, Daniel, I love you guys, and I thank you for being that in my life. Guys who recognize the call of God on my life and try their very best 
with all that goes on here, from all the small details to wrapping this rope around here and putting these carpets down and figuring out which wire goes in where, to the big details of how do we deal with all these hurting and lost people that are coming here. And they try their very best to equip me for love and good works. I've been a part of a youth group thing called Air Cadets. It was great. It was awesome. Taught me leadership, confidence. Uh, taught me how to be a teacher. Um, but it also taught me how to be an alcoholic. It also taught me how to be super proudful, prideful uh, about the dumbest things. Like whose boots were the most polished. Like whose, whose uh, pockets were the best starched and most, like flattest. And yes. And whose pants had like the most sharp creases on them, right? Who could like, turn the snappiest, huh? But the church called someone up the other day just to say that I appreciate them and that uh, they did a great job at something they were doing. And, um, they're like, you called me really just to say nice things, and that's it. You're not asking me for anything. Like, yeah. <laughs> People do that for me too, right? But that's not like normal in most cases. And the church has taught me that to just love and care and appreciate people. And for you, your job is to discern and find what love and good works you can push other people forward in. And here's a little prophetic moment for some of you who've been in the church for a little bit. Let me read the verse. Here we go. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so is it your habit to neglect meeting together? Or is it your habit to not push other people forward in love and good works? That most of the time you just want people to push you forward in love and good works, but you don't want to push other people forward in love and good works. You don't want to take somebody who's imperfect and help them along. Or you don't have time for it. And some of you, a lot of you have kids and you have a season where you have to Take it easy and really disciple this one little thing, baby. And it's hard and crazy. You probably feel like tearing your hair out, right? Most of the time. And some of you guys are doing an awesome, awesome job. And you still find time to push other people forward in love and good works. But for some of you, it's your excuse to back off and make it the habit of not meeting together. And we love you. All right, next. A desire for holiness and not sin. Jesus' death accomplishes for you a desire for holiness and not sin. What am I talking about? Uh, most of the time when I... When I talk to non-Christians about my faith, and this just happened the other day, St. Patrick's Day, I started talking to them, and uh, they're like, oh, cool, you're a Christian, whatever. So uh, what do you think about sex before marriage? Can I do it? <laughs> what do you think about getting drunk? Yeah. 
Do I have to go to church every Sunday? Or can I just like chill out and watch football? Is that all right? Does, does God still love me? Yes, but you might be missing out on something really cool. <clears throat> Sin is not necessarily the activity that you do because chilling and watching football on a Sunday is not necessarily a sin. Like sometimes after church, we all go to Mike's house, chill and watch football. <laughs> Mike reached over to Isaac. Isaac's got his Panthers shirt on right now, right? Is Isaac sinning by wearing that? Well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I love you, bro. But here's the issue, right? For some people, football is their religion. It's where they find their identity, their community. Uh, it's where they spend most of their desire, time, and affection. Resources. You ever seen some of those guys with like the craziest, coolest like rooms with all sorts of paraphernalia and jerseys and autograph this and beer hat that? And <clears throat> None of that stuff is bad, right? Maybe it is for you. Here's what Jesus' death accomplishes. A desire for holiness. When, uh, when God came and he spoke to me the first time on the subway, felt like the floorboard of my life had been pulled out from underneath me. I didn't know how to process the world around me anymore, if God was real. and What, what does that mean? And he spoke to me, but like, what to do? Um, the second time he spoke to me, I, I got it. Because he changed something in me. And he broke chains off of me. And he pointed something out. He says that the desire that you have for certain things will fade. And the desire to know me will increase. And all my friends who I'd met in Australia then, um, they'd all left on a missions trip. And I spent three weeks like alone in my apartment, kind of probably like the creepy comic guy in The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> uh, like, if you would have saw, saw me those three weeks, um, you'd be like, whoa, like, what happened to this guy? Because I didn't leave my apartment. I just was in there, and I read the whole New Testament. I watched maybe, like, over 60 hours of sermons, like, Bible teaching online. Um, and the only thing I would get up to do was maybe go to the bathroom and have some food. Maybe I was probably surviving on hunger a day or something. <laughs> um, not that that's what you need to do. But something changed. <laughs> I'm not telling you to do that. It was, it was probably pretty gross, actually. <laughs> but there was a desire that struck up in me that I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what it was. I was like, man, okay, okay, if God is real and Jesus is alive and, and God is speaking to us and he gave us this book called the Bible that is his word, man, I want to read this thing, right? I met a Christian dude there uh, in Australia. And this really convicted me on wanting to read the Bible. Uh, so I was like, hey, man, like, read the, the whole New Testament. Like, God's really changed my life. And, and uh, I think I want to read the whole thing. And he said, man, I've, I've been a Christian for 18 years. I've never read the whole Bible. I was like, what? Really? I said, yeah. Wow. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And he said, dude, me neither. So, dude, let's read it then, right? Right? <clears throat> and I'll tell you, reading the Bible 
from cover to cover, it's crazy. Like, it'll change your life. Just just reading through it and asking God, God, what are you saying? What are you doing in this passage? Man? Through the series of passages. Read like 10 chapters of the Bible in one day, you're like, whoa, something's happening. There's a bigger picture here. You read like one verse, and you're like, oh, that's nice. It's like a little, it'll give me a good boost for the next 30 seconds. My desire for alcohol diminished to now I can just have a beer at dinner, have a nice glass of wine at dinner, enjoy it for what it is. I love scotch. You know what? Sometimes you just sit on the couch, have just a little dessert, and a nice glass of scotch, one little ice cube. Awesome. That's it, right? But my desire to be drunk out there. Lastly, the death of Jesus accomplishes for you joy in persecution for your faith. Where did I get that from? Verse 32 to 36. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Some of you, I've totally experienced this. After I became a Christian, friends, family were like, man, what's wrong with this guy? Just a phase or whatever that'll pass. I think it's just because of that girl. And I talk to people, and some people who are like my best friends now speak to me in the harshest ways because of my faith. But there is joy there because no matter what my reputation, no matter what stuff I have, right? It talks about the plundering of your property. These Christians were literally being persecuted, their stuff being taken, and being put in jail. But greater than that, they have a promise. A promise from a God who is good. And now let's talk about why he's good. You ever thought about uh, stealing from a man who has unlimited money? Is it really stealing? He's got unlimited money. Why don't we just take it? Right? We can all have unlimited money. And if God was the man with unlimited money, wouldn't we just steal from him the unlimited money and then everything's good? No, because it doesn't change your heart. You're still a thief, right? And you're still taking. How do we fix that? God sent some, God gave something that he only had one of for you. He only has one son. And on the week that we talked about Jesus' humanity, we know that his son gave up being divine. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, one God, three persons, 
He gave up his divine nature to come to earth to be a man. To die for me. To die for you. To change that heart. We call this the atonement. This atonement is universal. From Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see, Revelation 21, that all things will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more sin, suffering, sickness, death. None of that. Only the presence of God and the people who trust in his death in eternal joy with him. It's Revelation 21. And this was God's plan for the universe. Planets, stars, trees, earth. But the atonement is also personal. This is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Hebrews 2.17, we read way back. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God. That there is a wrath, we read that in Passover, there is a wrath of God towards sinners. Jesus takes the fullness of that. In him, he takes the fullness of that and satisfies it. He's also our expiation. Man, why do I got to keep using these ridiculous words? <laughs> another, uh, another lamb in the Old Testament was the scapegoat. And the people of God would confess their sins on the scapegoat and they would send it out of, uh, out of the city. And it literally represented them being cleansed of their sin. That their sin, the Bible says, was put as far as the east is from the west. Time's it. <laughs> the Old Testament people, by creating shadows, and by executing these shadows that God had put in place, represent their faith in the death of Jesus. By the same virtue, the true form of these realities has come 2,000 years ago on a cross. And you can put your faith in Jesus as well and be made new. For the Christian in here, it may be that this is sustaining you for the next day. Just to think back and remember and to sing and to enjoy and to celebrate what comes in the death of one. It's like Air Force One, the salvation of the president. What an awesome way this fictional pilot died. <laughs> but it doesn't get more true than God coming to earth to die for you. There's no other true reality. No other way. And so stop trying, white-knuckling, twisting the arm of God, avoiding him altogether. Lovely pastor, 
John Piper says this, that the cost of food in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is hunger for the bread of heaven. If you want this new reality, you can have it. And if you feel this hunger coming up inside you, man, Adam, I've really been missing out on these things. Like, I don't have that. I don't have a community that pushes me forward in love and good works. I've so isolated myself that I'm alone. Or Adam, I'm carrying guilt and shame. You have, you have freedom. You can have it. That hunger that's in you, let it out and just eat. 